the title of this, this message is just one of those really awesome titles, you know, it's just like, whoa, it's really simply this. I, I should come up with something better, but it's the work of the church in reaching the nations. Uh, maybe a subtitle of that would be, your ecclesiology impacts your missiology. And that is, that is my contention. I think the word church is one of those words everyone uh, thinks they know um, and understands, but uh, many, many actually cannot define it. When we ask you, what, what do we mean when we say, what is the local church? Um, you'd be surprised at the answers you would get, even from graduates, uh, perhaps of this institution, seminaries, and then years even on the mission field, unfortunately. And I'm convinced it explains why missions and global outreach, in some cases, is what it is. Because if you don't know what the church is, how, do you, how can you plant one? I mean, it's most basic level. Now, I'm not talking about worship styles. I'm not talking about building. I'm not talking about padded chairs, benches, uh, building, you know, that when it rains so hard, you, gotta, you really have to have a quite sound system for them to be able to hear your voice. I'm just talking about the basic nature of what is the local church. And so what, is, what it comprises, when you can say, we now have a local church established here, what, is, what does that mean? And I think not only as an entity, but what it is made up of, people like you and me. And I think that, that, that's, that's exactly where I'm going to go with this, uh, this morning with you. And so I, I honestly believe what you believe about the church, what your view of the church is, will dictate how you do missions. I, I'm convinced of that. I'm not a missiologist, as many of you know. I don't have the, the years that Scott has and some others uh, who've held us, uh, the, the post before in other churches or here at the Bible College. Um, but I've been able to observe over a number of continents, uh, hundreds of missionaries, uh, talking to many mission heads, and um, it's, it, I, I'm convinced more than ever that what your view of the church is, and why that I mean the local church uh, impact, and, and to a degree the universal church, impacts how you do missions. And so my aim uh, this afternoon, this morning, uh, my, to, to prove my contention that your ecclesiology impacts your missiology. And so I want to do that by defining a number of terms. What, what do we mean when we say church? What do we mean when we say nations? What is, what is the mission of the church? And I, I know many of you know those passages, but I think I'm going to lay them out a little bit differently for you today than maybe what you've seen before. So before we look at this thing called church, uh, some definitions. First, the nation's defined. And again, many of you know, especially if you're in a missions concentration, the word that is used there, we're not talking about government entities. We're not talking about the United States of America. We're not talking about the People's Republic of China. Uh, we're not talking about Russia proper. We're not talking about Germany, Bolivia, Mexico. We're talking about ethnicities, because the word is ethnos, as you know. And so it's talking about those people groups, those ethnicities around the world that maybe share borders with several, several countries. For example, like the Maasai, um, you know, when it was divvied up amongst the European powers and when they all finally, Kenya got its independence, Tanzania got its independence, the Maasai is like, I'm a Tanzanian? <laughs> no, I'm a Maasai. You know, I'm a Kenyan? No, and they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So we're not talking about national, bound, national boundaries. We're talking about people groups of individuals. And so what it says about going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts to all the other nations, it isn't necessarily countries that he's referring to. He's referring to all the different people groups that are out there for us to reach. Second definition, what, what is this thing we call church? Well, there's two aspects, as you know, if, if, especially if you're taking the survey doctrine, the ecclesiology class. Whoa, man. I'm just waiting for the disco ball to drop, and then I'll, I'll <laughs> moonwalk. Okay. No, sorry, sorry about that. That's my back in my BC days. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So what is this thing we call church? Well, there's two, two aspects, the universal church and the local church. 
A universal church, as John MacArthur said, it's not a physical building, but a group of believers. It's not a denomination or association, although those may be part of it, but it is a spiritual body. Church is not an organization, but a, a communion, a fellowship of one body, and it includes all believers. All believers, regardless of ethnicity, re regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of language, regardless of 500 years ago, 1,000 years, 2,000, whatever it might be, believers. That is the universal, the overarching church. Okay? But within that, there are entities called local churches. Okay? And that is, as Dr. Robert Cook has said this, and this is a textbook definition, but it's a pretty good one. I'll give you one about grace here in just a moment. It's an organized assembly of baptized believers in Christ. An organized assembly of baptized believers in Christ with leadership in one locality where God's word is preached and practiced. Okay, Notice that, preached and practiced. And the two ordinances of believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper is observed. Now, that right, right away, there's some hairs and feathers are getting ruffled. But, okay, that's coming from a conservative Baptist background, um, and I, I think it's accurate. Uh, here's, here's how I would put it, and, and don't, don't lay this at Pastor Brian or Pastor Jeremy or whomsoever else, but for the sake of argument on that Friday night that's coming, it's a Grace Bible Church. It's a local manifestation of the universal church it is a family of people <clears throat> who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, they've been baptized as believers in Christ, are gifted by the Holy Spirit, led by godly men who gather regularly for worship in order to practice the two ordinances of believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to be equipped and edify in order to grow Christ's likeness, so that we are prepared to accomplish the Great Commission from Bozeman to the ends of the earth, bringing glory to God. That is really the intent of the local church. That is who we are, and that is what we do. And so I, I would submit to you uh, in this day and age that while there's a, a, a focus and everybody says, well, we're all part of the church, is that may be true. But the universal churches, apart from local churches, cannot do the work of the ministry. They cannot. It takes local bodies of men and women like you and me to carry out the mandates of the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do, beloved. And so you can speak all you want about the universal church. I, I thank God for it. We even, uh, when we recite the creeds, we refer to it. It's the communion of the saints, right? And so I, I believe in it. But something that is universal and nebulous, nebulous that is out there, how does it practically build you up in the faith? When you die, who buries you? The universal church or somebody in a local church? When you get married, when you walk the aisle, okay? Who does that? The universal church or the local church? Who nurtures you in a faith? Who exhorts you? Who disciplines you if necessary? Who, who provides the background for you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? The universal church or the local church? And it's not to say there's only one local church here in the Bozeman, Bozeman area of the Gallatin Valley. There are numerous local churches. So that is not even the issue. But together with all believers, because not everybody in every church is a believer, correct? We make up the universal church. And so, who does this work of reaching the nations? And I would submit to you, it's the local church, and by extension, the local church is doing the work. And by that, then the universal church can reach the nations. <clears throat> this can be done individually or in partnership with other local churches or mission agencies. But make no mistake about it, it's the local church or local churches carrying out the God-given mandate that accomplishes 
the mission of reaching the nations with the gospel of Christ. If this is so, what is that work of the local church? And it is this. You could call it the call of the church. You could call it the commission of the church. You could call it the mission of the church. But I think it is found for us at the end of the day right here in Acts chapter 1. And this is a verse. You can turn to it if you want to, but I know most of you probably have memorized this. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? And you will be, here's a promise, you will be my witnesses. And where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So wherever the end of the earth is from where you are sitting today, that's where it's going to extend, is where it's going to go. So here in Acts 1.8, he explains how God's re redemptive plan for all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations would be and should be implemented, and who's supposed to carry it out. His redemptive plan is geographical in scope. Notice he says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts, as some of your translations have, or to the end of the earth. To put it another way, from here to there. Or to put it another way, like some of the bumper stickers around Bozeman. Globally and locally, or locally and globally. That's what it is. That's our task. As Roger, Roger Hedlund said, mission takes place in a world of cultures. The book of Acts shows the progression of the gospel from the Jewish Jews of Jerusalem into the Judean countryside, then to the Samaritans, to the Hellenized Jews, and from the latter to the Gentiles at Antioch, and finally, the multiple cultures of the Roman Empire and the rest of the world. So his redemptive plan is geographical in scope, not limited just locally, but it's geographical, the whole earth. It is also, this order tells us who God's redemptive plan is for. It is for Jews and Gentiles. How do I know? To order, to honor his promise of Salvation to the Jews and also to Gentiles. Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of God, right? Gospel of Christ. For it is a power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Really, at the end of the day, there, <clears throat> there are two groups of people. There's the Jews and there's the Gentiles, which make up everybody else. And so that's it. Its scope is everybody those two classes, everywhere in the world, that is our task. In his redemptive plan, it is clear who is supposed to carry out this plan. And that is believers who are part of a local church. That is God's plan for us. That's what we, we are to do. Acts is the historical narrative, the establishment and growth of the early church. You might say, well, it's a universal church. Well, it's true. The day of Jerusalem, they're all one. And it begins to spread, and then becomes local assemblies from there. But it is still local churches. Don't miss that aspect. It shows us how Peter and John, then Philip and Paul, and then the church planting team from Antioch, followed the command of God in extending his saving message. Acts introduces the church as a primary vehicle for taking his message to the nation. We see that in Jerusalem in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, 14 through 39, Peter stands up and speaks for the group on their behalf and preaches and says, this, this is that. This is, this is what Joel was talking about, the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. This spirit is the promise that was going to come, right? And from there, he began to preach Jesus Christ to them. So much so that 3,000 people said, men and brethren, what must we be do? What must we do to be saved? And he said, repent. 
and be baptized on account of the remission of sins. And 3,000 souls that they were added to what now is the church. There's its birth. And as we read throughout the book of Acts, we see God added to their numbers daily as they went up to the temple and they healed people and people gathered. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And Peter preaches and John preaches and people are saved. And then as we move through the book of Acts, what, what do we see? We see him going to Judea and Samaria. And we turn over to chapter 8 and here are the Samaritans. They're coming to faith. Philip, because of the persecution as a result of Stephen's stoning, he, he leaves and he's going through Samaria and he preaches and people get saved. <clears throat> the church in Jerusalem hears about it. So they send the apostles down to lay hands on him so we can see the connection between Jews and Samaritans. So please, please don't miss it. That's, that's the reason for it. Because these half-breeds, the gospel of the Messiah has come to half-breeds? Yes, he has. They heard the gospel. They embraced it. All except for the sorcerer, right? And they come down and they acknowledge that these two have received salvation. We jump ahead and here's Philip. The Holy Spirit says, get up and go down to Gaza. He's like, okay. And he takes him down to Gaza and he comes along in that very dry place, as Luke gives us that little editorial comment. And what, what does he hear? He sees an Ethiopian eunuch who's the treasure for Candace, the Queen of Sheba, right? which is part of Ethiopia, Iteria, Somalia, okay, northern part of Sudan. That, that's Sheba. And he's somebody. He's their treasurer. He's been to Jerusalem. And he must be somebody because he has what? He has a scroll, at least the scroll of Isaiah. It might be a scroll of more of the Older Testament. And he's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip hears it. And he says, join, join the chariot. And he goes up. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, can I? Unless a man help me. He said, tell me, is he speaking of himself or of another? And the text tells us, what did he preach? What did he preach? Social gospel? Social justice? He preached Christ from this passage, that he's the Messiah. And the Ethiopian eunuch must believe because a little layer says, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he takes him down in the Mediterranean, baptizes him. Up he goes. He's rejoicing. And the Spirit takes, takes Philip and moves him. Now, how he did that, I don't know. I'm, looking, I'm waiting for the reruns in heaven. You know, I want to see it. He's along to this chariot, and suddenly, boom, he's in another part of the country. He goes all the way up to Caesarea by the sea, preaching the gospel, and resides there. Well, not to be outdone, chapter 9, we find Paul breathing threats. He's going to Damascus to arrest people in the church. And on the way, he's struck by the Lord. And later, as he tells his testimony, two great questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him. And he follows it to the point of being beheaded later in his life, right? And after Paul, so right there we see Paul a Jew, the Samaritans. We see Ethiopian. Chapter 10, we come to Gentiles. Amazing thing. Peter sees a vision. He's in Joppa. And he sees that wonderful vision. And God said, look, I'm sending some guys. You, when they come, you just go with them. And you know the whole story about Cornelius and his family coming to faith in Christ. And so right there within the first 10 chapters, what, what have we done? We have seen the three streams of humanity, <clears throat> the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, represented in the Ethiopian eunuch, in Paul, and in Cornelius. All the main nations 
from which all of us come, by the way, in one shape, a form, or another, are saved. This is, this is done through the Jerusalem church and the people that have come out, either through the persecution or God's salvation of individuals. So we jump over to chapter 11, and what do we find here? So if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 11, we're going to see how this is going to, to branch out just a little more. As he goes to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. And in chapter <clears throat> 11, we find this recorded for us. And now the apostles and brothers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came up, those of the circumcision contended with him. So they're going to say, what are you doing going into Gentiles? They're unclean. And so Peter relays the story to them. And okay, okay, good. Well, all right. God's granted repentance to the Gentiles too. Why do I say that? Because you have people resistant in our local churches who don't want, want you. Well, we've got so many people in Bozeman that need to be saved. Yeah, well, what will we do? Probably got about 100,000. In a, in a greater Gallatin Valley. But we have people all around the world that need to be saved too, right? And not just people who look like us, sing like us, or any of the rest of it. So now we, we, we're going to jump up to verse 19. Now those, Luke is going back to chapter 8, just now, those who were scattered after the persecution arose over Stephen, well, he's jumped four chapters here, but that's fine. He can do that. He's the editor and writer. They traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word, notice it, to no one but the Jews only. <clears throat> because they're racist. Who's the gospel to? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But what happens? But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Lucius, maybe. Barnabas, we know, is from Cyprus. Who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching. So here's this other group, the Hellenistic Jews. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And what do we find out about this church? A lot of Gentiles. So the church of Jerusalem hears that they send Barnabas, go as far as Antioch, and he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them, purpose of heart. And we get this editorial, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great many people were added to the Lord. So what does he do? The ministry grows. He goes to Tarsus to get Saul. Because undoubtedly he had heard, because remember Paul had tried to come up and meet with the, the disciples and people were frightened of him. And Barnabas took him and said, no, 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 this is the real deal. He really didn't meet the Lord. He really is saved. He's on our side. And so they sent him to Tarsus, kind of get him out of town and go back home and do some work. And Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him down. And so they begin to teach. And many are added, a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so prophet comes down. So we go through the rest of this history, and where, where am I getting to this? We're, we're getting to this point. We come to chapter 13, and something really unique happens here. You have a church that's multicultural. Okay, when you look at the names here in Acts 13, and again, we can only do this in, in a cursory fashion, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, okay, probably black, probably an African, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, and Saul. So you got somebody with a Greek name, or Latin, an African. You have a couple of Jewish fellows, and Menaean probably was Jewish, or 
or in this case, since he was brought up in Herod's household, he might have been an Edomian as well. We don't know for sure. So here's a mixed group, multicultural leadership in the church, and a multicultural team is going to be sent out. And the Holy Spirit says, separate from me these men. You're going to notice about them, they've been trained. They preach the word. Right? They know how to disciple. So the church isn't just sending any, any old person out here. They're sending the A team. Right? That's who they're sending. They're sending men who've been trained. Men who understand the calling of God. They understand their theology. They know to preach the cross. And he's sending them out. And they go. And, and what, what, what do they do? Paul follows a trade route, which is often was his custom. Would follow a trade route, going to key locations, and f- almost always went to a synagogue first. Correct? Why would he go to a synagogue? Jews, proselytes, God fears. And yet in city after city, because as people came to faith, the God fears came to faith. The proselytes switched horses again, if you will. It ran, ran into opposition from the Jews, the legalistic segment of the Jews. So where did Paul turn? He went to the Gentile school in Ephesus, the marketplace in Corinth. He went to the philosophical center of Athens and Mars Hill. Wherever the doors were open, however, his message was the cross, fit within the culture of the day, and preach Jesus in repentance to those individuals. And as you know, that team came back and reported what happened. They established leadership in all the churches, and Paul wrote letters to them, encouraging, exhorting, correcting doctrine, correcting problems in the church, right? Who sent out this team? Wasn't the church in Jerusalem. Wasn't a council of churches. Wasn't a mission agency. So local church sent them out to do the work of the ministry, to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. This church also cared for the church in Jerusalem. How do we know? They gave gifts on more than one occasion, helped feed the widows, helped with the poor. They did all of that. There's no indication that they worked with the government. <clears throat> I'm not saying you can't. There's no indication that they worked with any other church in the city because there were no other churches. They carried this out. In short, they did the work of the ministry in their local town, and they gave to the work Paul was doing when they could, and he took it to help other people. As Mark Tatlock said, Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.20 is useful as an overarching theme for his life. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The allusion to an ambassador is a picture of his church planting ministry providing an effective connotation. It is an ambassador who is tasked primarily with brokering peace between warring kingdoms. Man represents the fallen kingdom of this world, and God, defining his perfectly righteous heavenly kingdom, find their agent of peace in those who are functioning as spiritual ambassadors. Christ himself serves as the ultimate ambassador and the church his commissioned representatives. For it is in his authority, in his alone, the followers of Christ proclaim the hope-filled message of reconciliation and peace. Paul was an exponent and propagator of the gospel. He expected the early churches to be of like mind. And we could look at all the verses. We won't forsake a time. Let's look at the clock. 
But I would add this. George Peters writes, The book of Acts demonstrates the progression of the message of Christ to the end of the earth, which for Luke is Rome in the center of the Roman Empire. All the all nations of Luke 24, 27, however, do not receive the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. Please, please note that. Right? It has gone as far as the center of Rome. But it hasn't gone to all nations yet. And this dimension of the Old Testament promise is still not completely fulfilled today. That the fulfillment of this command as promised in the Old Testament should give the church confidence and urgency as it moves toward to accomplish this task. Right? So what, are, what is my point as we wind down here? The church, local and universal, local churches everywhere filled with Christ's followers, is central to this era of the mandate Christ gave back in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1.8. We, you, you and me, are part of local churches. And that mandate is given to the church. And because you make up what is a local church and what makes up the universal church, this mandate is yours and mine. It isn't your pastor's. It isn't the mission's pastor. It is your mandate. It is my mandate. And as a local church, not, not to the, getting rid of all the other local churches in the area, not getting rid of the other agencies in town, but as a local church, we have the responsibility. It is our responsibility to re re receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, to walk in his power, to preach the gospel to every person in this valley, in this town, in this county, in this state, and all around the world. Not to the exclusion of our sister churches, but because we've been called to do it. And if we do it and they do it, we'll get it done, blood. Will we not? That's, that's my whole point. So often when we hear the Great Commission, we think it's only, and God bless Kathy and our other outreach partners, but it's not just their task. It is our task. It was given to the local church to do. And whatever church you belong to, I, I beseech you, I implore you to get out and do the work of the mission that Christ has given us. So it's not that we compete with the other churches that are like-minded. It's not we compete with Love, Inc. or Haven or whatever the rest it is. But we do that work ourselves because that's our mandate, not theirs, right? It's not our government's mandate. It's our mandate. And so it's time we pick it up and take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so if you're here and that's your, your desire, you, you want to be an outreach partner, you want to be a missionary to the uttermost parts of the earth, that's the church you want to plant. One that eventually has trained leadership. People who understand the word, who preach Christ first and foremost. I don't care about padded chairs. I don't care about heat, central heat and central air. I've preached, I've preached in buildings where ducks and chicken walk through when you're preaching. Dogs walk in and lay down at the pulpit. I've had a dog sit there and look up at me when I'm preaching. Okay? And you know what? My brothers and sisters don't mind. That happens in America. Ah! Right? You know, it's not about buildings. It's not about music styles. It's not about instruments or no instruments. It is about the church being the church preaching Christ. Right? That's what it's about. And so we do that. So we try to feed the poor as much as we can, but we help others who do it also. We try to reach people on campus in the community, but we help others who do that also. But make no bones about it. It is our mandate to do. And so I'm calling you, as I'm going to call the church in 
Friday night here in a few days. Pick it up and do it. Because God gave it to us to do. He didn't leave it for others to do. We can be in partnership, yes, but at the end of the day, there are 16,000 students from around the U.S. There's six to seven hundred internationals, and guess what? They're not all reached for Christ. So I don't care if it's our church alone or ten other churches. Get on campus and bring them to Christ, right? So it's not a competition. It is do your work and work together where you can. But don't miss the point. It is your work and my work to do. And so as we end this, just remember, from Bozeman to around the world, to every people group on the face of the earth, every neighborhood, every platform, every opportunity, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, every color, every size, every shape, every age from cradle to grave. Ultimately, well, there is no white church. There's no black church. I know there's churches made up more of those colors. I get that. But when you read scripture, we talk about a local church, we talk about a universal church. There is no black church. There's no red church. There's no yellow church. There's no rainbow church. There's only Christ church. As he's represented in a locale and around the world with those who are in communion through Jesus Christ. There's, there's the church made up of blood-bought, justified, being sanctified, someday glorified men, women, and children. That's what the church is. And that's what I hope we are. There are local manifestations of the church, and in some places, way more than one. But every one of them are called to reach out to their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and together the uttermost parts. And that's why we took as our theme for the conference this year, 2 Corinthians 5.20. But we beseech you on behalf of Christ. We implore you, we beg you, as ambassadors of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our message. And I pray that you will rise up and take it to the uttermost parts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you called us and have bought us, not with gold and silver, not with precious stones, but with the precious blood of your Lamb. I thank you for all the local churches that are represented here. And churches that preach the gospel, to send men and women out. But Father, the task is not done. The task is not done in Bozeman. It's not done in the Gallatin Valley. It's not done in Montana. It's not done in the United States. And it certainly is not done in the rest of the world. We're depending on the figures anywhere from 1.6 to 3 billion people really have no gospel witness of any kind. No New Testament, no portion of Scripture, no radio, no church bodies. And so we pray that in our generation, the local church would understand who she is and what she's to do. We reach out, yes, in Bozeman. Yes, we reach out to our Samaria, whoever those people might be that, that are hard for us to love or understand or work with, however, using that picture of the Samaritans and the Jews, reaching throughout to our Judea. But, Father, raise up a multitude of men and women from amongst our local assemblies to go into the world where they've yet to hear the message of Jesus Christ. So whether we go locally or globally, may we beseech men, women, and children, red, yellow, black, and white, 
Republican and Democrat and independent, conservative and no party, rich, poor, young and old, to reach them with the message to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. I pray your church will become the church you've meant it to be. Help us to that end, we pray for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.